You're listening to episode number 186 of the Ruby on Rails podcast. Uh, today, I'm happy to be joined by Daryl Silver. Hey, Daryl. Hey. So Daryl's the CEO of Thinkful. That's the title, right? CEO? Yeah, yeah right. absolutely. So CEO of Thinkful. Now, Thinkful's been a sponsor a handful of times of the podcast, and I think as is now tradition, I eventually... Uh, once I read the the sponsor bit a few times, start to wonder more about the company that I'm reading about. So I uh, decided to invite you on to learn more, and uh, I think you've got some interesting things to talk about in general. So uh, let's get to it. Why don't you tell me a bit about Thinkful? Sure. Um, actually, let me ask: Has anybody come on the show and like really pitch, like really just advertise for an hour? Is that a thing that you've had happen? Yeah. Having, oh wow. That's, well, not a, not advertised for an hour. That's not true. But I've okay. had I've had people that have advertised come on for an hour. That part's true. Oh yeah. And, I mean, we are people behind the ads. That's like <laughs> exactly. <true>. Well, I <laughs> think it's a funny taboo. Like, uh, so, so it started the first um, kind of recurring sponsor, long term sponsor of the podcast is, and they still are a sponsor is Codeship. Yeah. And at the time that they started sponsoring, I didn't really know them, and I think that. I think that they may may have sponsored the podcast as part of their initial push once they got uh, whatever yeah. large round of funding happened earlier on. I like their I like their um they use like the nomenclature of pirates and ships and stuff like cuz it's like a nice they, they let the language flow through all their all their marketing which is fun. Yeah, and I think that they've gotten that right over time. I think early on it was a little bit more dominant than it is now. But like they still, um, you know, like before they have ahoy more often in their marketing right. material than they do mm -hmm. now. But, but I think yeah, I think I agree. It's right. They call it the code ship, and I think that that one little turn of phrase kind of caught my ear early, and I liked it. But anyhow, so they 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 sponsored, and I hadn't heard of them before they sponsored. Now it seems like you can't go anywhere without seeing their marketing. But. Yeah. Um, but enough about them. Who, who is this thankful character? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so I had them on. This is to answer your question. I had yeah, them yeah. on, and it was like an hour or so episode with their CTO, and I really enjoyed it. Like, I learned a ton more, and it made all the future sponsor reads interesting, and I got good feedback on it. So I, I said, "What the hell?" So tell me about thankful. Oh, cool. Uh, well, so thankful is an online school. We have a network of uh, about three hundred software engineers located around the U.S., and they work one on one with every one of our students. And so as a student, our students are like, they're located anywhere, again, mostly in the U.S. Um, so far. Uh, and they, they, they're with us to learn software engineering either as a beginner engineer, someone who's like played with Codecademy and wants more, or as a more experienced engineer, someone who's in a job and who wants to learn best practice around a skill or pick up a whole new like framework or, or area of technology. And so we pair the mentors and experts I would pair our mentors with our students, and they they work together. Which to is the more them. typical demographic? The the kind of beginner plus is that the the usual set? Yeah. Well, we started two and a half years ago. Me and my co-founder um, working mostly only with beginners, and then what we found was that about ten or fifteen percent of our students had their companies paying, uh, and like almost all of our students are full time employed, and they're either looking for a new job. And so when we started digging into that, that 10 or 15% number, um, we discovered a whole bunch of uh, uh, places where uh, really what people were looking for were more advanced skills. And that can be like more specific skills or something like SQL or something like a particular framework. And then we just started building classes around them. So now um, it's, it's the, like the fastest growth part of what we're doing is in existing engineers, what we call intermediate engineers, people who've been doing it for like three or five years. And you don't have to be in an engineering department. You can just be writing code. 
Um, but people that are that are existing engineers learning learning a whole bunch of new skills, and they want to do it really quickly. So I had Justin Weiss on last week, and he's been on before. He just came out with a book called Practicing Rails. He's a development manager at a company called Avo, I think. And uh, and anyways, he's a great guy. He's got one of the most popular Rails blogs, and he's a, just a very thoughtful guy. And his book was targeted at the demographic you just said, which is kind of intermediate or almost intermediate programmers. So yeah. people that have like gone through at least one tutorial could say at a party that they're a you know, Rails developer or Python developer or whatever. <laughs> and, um, Which is what they're all doing. They're all going around. Like, yeah, exactly. But like where the rubber hits the road, they're not really going to build anything big. Um, so they're, they're kind of at that point in their career. Uh, and it sounds like that, that's a, that's a growth area for you, which I don't think is, I don't think that's a coincidence. I also think it's the largest demographic that listens to this show by a pretty wide margin. Oh, cool. Or like beyond beginners, but not advanced somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. And those are the people where they're either trying to be like full-time engineers. They want that. They want to roll on an engineering team or they have to write code to get a job done. And they're looking for like an efficient way to get that done. And so it's the kind of thing where, um, I mean, I went through this when I was, when I had all, when I was like 15 and I had all the time in the world to spend on, on like the most detailed problems, you know, it was easy to, it was easy to just spend a weekend being stuck on a problem. Um, but as an adult, like you just don't have that luxury of, of having no responsibilities. And so these are people like looking for a vastly faster way to get to the right answer. And they can't like Google, like you can stack exchange your way to a bunch of stuff, but you can't, but like you can't stack exchange your way to best practice. You can only cobble things together. Um, I'm imagining like a bad Taylor Swift song as your marketing. You know, at 15, I had time to, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was about to say, can you sing that? I was going to try to go you yeah. into singing it and then you just sung it immediately. Well, I didn't really, Funny. that <laughs> wasn't really singing it, but you can, I just wanted to make sure you, you got the song. Uh, yeah. Well, you, you could you imagine just an awful feels, parody. What's the theme song to this podcast? You should, you should be, it should be you doing the jingles. Yeah. Right. Well, my brother is a, uh, well, my brother and my mother are professional musicians, but my brother is like a very active professional musician and yeah. I, he, um, he listened to the podcast a couple times and has given me hell about not having a theme song. And now, now I think it's just a thing. I have a theme song to the ad music, which I, I think is uh, good, but, but not to the show in general. Okay. So, so back to, to thankful. So I've got a, um, I've got a confession early on that I think I want to talk about throughout the, uh, the episode, Okay, which is, I have kind of a complicated relationship myself with the idea of the, um, programming schools. And then I think that they're like great, but I, I often think that they don't represent themselves in the most honest way, which I'm not That's painting that. you in the corner of, but like in general, that can bother me. Yeah. Well, I mean, we think a lot about this and we certainly pay attention to the way the market evolves. And so like, it's, what, what do you mean? Cause there's a number of different ways you could take that. Well, so it would, do you consider thinkful at trade school? Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really funny. I uh, and it came up. I was just in, um, I was just for for like a very short couple of days in in at South by Southwest, and someone was saying, yeah, you know, we're a vacation a, a vocational school, but nobody's allowed to say vocational school anymore. Um, and that's that's not that's not too far off. And so a trade school, a vocational school, that's fair. But the associations with those words are all very, um, they're all very old school. And I think one of the things they imply to a lot of people. Uh, at least as much as we found, is it implies a kind of um, it implies a kind of skill that's rote, and that's actually not what programming is at all. When you get when you, the more you do it, the more you realize it's not like that. Um, 
And so, so people, so in our world, people stay away from the trade school or vocational school names. Well, I think that this is the bit that's the most interesting to me. So, because the pitch, if you like strip out the, well, the pitch for most, uh, companies that offer something similar to thinkful and everyone's got their own sort of deal. So it's not like everyone's offering the same thing, but, but in the general category of like learn to program and get a better job companies, um, the, 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 the punchline of the pitch is usually something like, um, DeVry plus hang out and drink cool coffee with people in a exposed brick building. It's like some (laughs) combination of those two things. And you should definitely put that as the marketing. (laughs) Well, but so like I, the extent to which what you said is true, which is that like, um, the benefit kind of is like a vocational school or trade school, like a DeVry or ITT, um, you know, and that you, you didn't have that type of job beforehand. You go through a relatively quick and relatively inexpensive. Now, not that ITT or DeVry are necessarily inexpensive, but they're not four year schools. You go through some sort of, you know, education process. You come out the other end, not with a bachelor's, but with some sort of, you know, representable skill that converts into money easily, right? That's like the the, the idea. Right, right. Um, but like, there's that similarity. But like you said, programming is not like TV VCR repair at all. Like, not even a little bit. Like, at least anything that's going to make decent money. So, like, the the disconnect between those two things kind of bugs me. You know, like, like, how is it that it can be pitched like TV VCR repair if everyone involved kind of doesn't really think it's anything like TV VCR repair? So what's up yeah. with that? You know, do you think that yeah. that's, do you think that it actually is more like TV VCR repair than I think? Or is no, there maybe I, a, a pitch a, that's not you, fair? I think the industry is pretty young. And I think the, um, a lot of what people want when they, when they join a school is they want to make, they want to demystify the world, this like new career world they're going into. So they're, you know, a few years out of college, especially boot camps, right? Boot camps, they're a few years out of college. They're looking for like a path into their next career. And they're really turned on by software engineering. I mean, anybody who's applying to like a 15 or $20,000 boot camp in their city and and in addition, quitting their job so they can make time for it is taking, you know, it's costing them about $50,000 when you're all in. Um, These are people that are making, that they want to have a path to that next career. And the, the sort of like exposed brick um, uh, hangout and learn environment is really attractive because it provides the, like it opens those doors. It opens the doors to understanding this foreign world that you, that you believe you're attracted to. Um, and the industry is young enough that you're still attracting, you, you can, a, a few good rounds of reputation building graduates can like attract, can like get people over the hurdle of spending all that money. And then um, the actual physical environment makes it really fun to be there. So there's, there's like a huge motivational aspect as well, which, which I think is really critical in this world. But you guys don't have the, you guys don't have the exposed brick to sell. You're selling yeah. more specifically the kind of lower opportunity cost, maybe lower total cost, but same benefits minus the interpersonal social side, right? Yeah, I mean, our, our programs are built around, and this is like why I was asking about how much people pitch their products. Our programs are built around people that don't want to quit their job, that don't want to spend that 50K in lost income or tuition. So all of our software, all of our programs can be done while you're full-time employed, and I mentioned like most of our students are, um, and they they fit really nicely into, a, into an adult schedule. You can, you can do it self-paced. You can do it uh, in your free time. You can do it in a month. You can do it in, tw- in, in seven months. The average is about three um, and, and each of our classes 
just just make sense on a someone who's going to be who, who's on their way to making that career change, but doesn't yet want to um, isn't isn't quite ready to to to, to like fully change their life and disrupt their life or change cities to go to a to go to a boot camp. Um, but it appeals to a lot of the, the beginner courses on our on our homepage. Like beginner appeal to a lot of the people who would otherwise be going to boot camps. That's for, that's for sure. So I, uh, I hope it's okay. I'm going to mention a competitor, but sure. what the hell? So a long time ago, I had Dave Paola from Block on, and it was, it was a long time ago, so I don't remember every detail of the conversation. But um, their pitch is similar to yours, I think. Is that right? Well, their pitch is as a boot camp. Um, and oh, it's just a remote boot camp. Yeah, and I think that's a dangerous. I think yeah. you know, right okay. now, um, right now, the market is sort of lax when it comes to job placement rates for boot camps. Uh, and I think if you ask, um, oh gee, who was it? Uh, there's a there's a really good report being put out right now about or being written right now um, about about placement rates and and how they're measured because there's actually no standardization in this industry. People are spending. Uh, in Block's case, five or seven thousand um, dollars, and they're expecting you to do it full time, and and then up from there, Block's actually at the cheap end, and the they're, they're offering this bootcamp experience, which implies job placement, but Block actually doesn't provide it, and so there's this there's this funny like immaturity in the market which they're playing into, which I think long term is gonna is gonna be tough to justify because in practice, um, it's it's very difficult to have job placement rates in the sort of like 40% or 60% and still survive. I think a lot of boot camps are finding that if they don't have mid to high 90s job placements of their graduates, then the graduates start being very frustrated about the overpromise, underdeliver nature of, of joining a school and taking all this risk and then not coming out on the other side with, with better income. Well, it seems like some people are offering a guarantee, and I would think that goes sort of standard now. Well, it's it's... I mean, look, there's a, there's a lot of people that are successfully changing their lives with, with offline boot camps, and that's um, a lot of them are doing some great work, and they're going to survive a lot of the maturity in the market. And then there's folks that are doing, you know, you don't want to call it like, you, you don't want to call it like, um, there's a lot of folks who are playing into the, into the immaturity of uh, the newness that people feel and the excitement that's around the entire idea of a boot camp. Um, and what you find, what, the reason I sort of believe that very strongly, that the market will mature away from the, the unclear promise and even the guarantee, which just offers money back as opposed to you can't get your time back, you can't get your job yeah, back. Yeah, sure. Um, that guarantee is very weird. Uh, aside from the fact that regulation-wise, those guarantees are dubious um, and you can't, you can't grow that very much. It's, there's a reason that education is so heavily regulated. Uh, the, what you find among the best graduates of boot camps is that they really, really put their time, in, time into researching them. So if you go to a city, here's an exercise. If you go to this, a city, uh, and it just happened in Austin because I was just there, and you talk to the people who are in boot camps in Austin, they'll say, you know, I joined this one, I applied to that one, I didn't get in. They'll know every single one. They'll know how good Iron Yard is in their area. They'll know how it compares to the JavaScript to a hacker, uh, to a to a maker square in a different spot, and they'll they'll rank those very highly. And if they don't get in, they'll feel like they missed out on on the on the name brand. And so it's it's people are not making these decisions lightly. And I think that tells you that in the future. And we've seen it over the last year. Everyone's going to be putting a lot more research into these major life choices about which school to go to. Uh, and so the ones that are offering sort of like guarantees, but really they're just giving you your, some of your money back or they're offering or they don't publish and they're not transparent about job placements, but they're advertising jobs. 
those are tricky. That's a tricky position to be in as the market matures. Well, I, I, uh, I like the side that you're on a lot better than the full-time bootcamp. So the ones that I like the, the least are, let me think about this. So, I mean, the, the in-person ones don't appeal to me in any way, shape or form. So I have a lot of trouble relating to them in that like they seem like a college extension, like a vacation for, you know, rich kids that didn't pick college. Right. And I like, not, that's super judgy. I don't even really mean that. That's just like my, <laughs> that's like my reaction when I, when I, yeah, cause I've gone to events at them. I used to live in Chicago and, you know, it was in the community enough that I got pretty familiar with how the deal went and, oh man, it just didn't, it, it kind of turned me off, but I don't know that that's, that's not like an objective analysis of the situation. That's more of just a personal feeling about it. Whereas See? yours yeah. seems much more adult, which is like, right. Like n- no one should up and quit their job and, because you don't even, they don't even know if they're going to be any good yet. Like the idea that one, if they just put the effort in, is going to be a good programmer, it, it flies in the face of I think my experience with people in programming. Which well, is, I mean, it's, it's certainly our, and again, it, it, you know, you have a representative of the company on, so of course I'm gonna, of course I'm gonna put our work in the in the best light. But but we we basically believe that we should be very transparent about what we're offering. Um, and make it appealing as a, on a really on an ROI basis for like the time and effort and money you're putting in. And so we don't, unfortunately, um, well, unfortunately for, for ease of comparison, we just don't compare to an offline bootcamp, uh, that's trying to charge a lot more and provide a much higher, uh, a much, uh, like a much closer resemblance to a job placement. Um, and I think that, that, that decision very clearly up front drives kind of every one of our moves after that and drives a lot of the bootcamp moves um, because they're going to, the the ambiguity about what that promise is and the, the lack of transparency in the bootcamp industry is really going to separate the great schools, uh, like I mentioned too already, uh, Iron Yard and, and Makersquare. Like those, those schools are really going to grow and thrive in this replace accredited education world from a kind of the, a lot of the other schools. And some of them are good and some of them aren't and some of them I don't think a lot of them are vacation. I think a lot of them are very, very tough on their students. Um, and that, that'll look a bit, I guess the phrase is separate the wheat from the chaff um, in this, in that offline world. And then in the online equivalent world as well, it'll, the same thing will happen. Yeah. I mean, it seems like your demographic may be, I don't know, three or four years older than the, than the demographic for, do you think that's fair? Like of, of the schools you mentioned, just people. Well, we're that- a lot bigger. We're a lot bigger. So we know a lot more, um, about who that demographic is. I think, I think there's a social element that you get on the offline that, that appeals a little bit to a younger crowd. And in our audience, you are seeing like the person who understands, um, that they can learn best practice much more quickly from an expert. Like they just want to jump in and, and be able to speed up that learning. They are coming to us. And so it probably skews older and we know where our audience skews, but I don't really know where the bootcamp market overall skews. So it's subtle. Like we're all, most of our students are sort of high 20s to, to 40s uh, through 40s so that like that 20 years um, of your of your career and that especially for the for the engineering based uh, courses and there's and our certainly our mentors are the same um, and we have exceptions there's a lot of homeschool kids who take thinkful there's a lot of um, really advanced college kids that take thinkful and so there's a lot of diversity out there but the experience they get um, certainly matches to, to someone who's out for 
um, uh, a more efficient way to learn a skill rather than rather than a social scene. I think that there are lots of people in the homeschool movement that would see your uh, homeschool or advanced college kids com- you know, comment as exactly apt. <laughs> that, the, that, that those are two are about the same. It was really exciting to learn it. Actually, so it's one of those things when you when it happens, you didn't you wouldn't have predicted it, but then it makes a lot of sense. So like. There's a, there's a number of homeschooled children and kids that come through at any age from all, as young as maybe 13 all the way up um, to sort of late teens the, who come in and they're, they're super dedicated. We find them a mentor who's excited about working with someone of that age. We're, we're in contact with the parent. And we don't do anything in particular to attract them, but, but the program makes a lot of sense, right? It's access to an expert to help you learn. And even though most of our students are more advanced um, uh, for, for our newer courses, like it's it's – it's amazing to see how well they can do because they get us, they get an experience tailored to them. Yeah. It totally makes sense. I mean, if I think about the average homeschool parent teacher, um, you know, the, the, the typical one I think would see the benefit of educating on the topics that, that you offer education in and the average wouldn't have those skills themselves. So yeah, that's, 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 that's exactly right. So we didn't predict it, but it makes sense once you see it happening. Yeah. Um, Let's flip over and talk about the mentor side for a sure. minute. Um, so, uh, if if one is going to be a mentor on one of let's let, let's pick one of your classes, like you have a Ruby or Rails class, right? Absolutely. Okay. So let's pick that class and let's say I'm a mentor. What's the experience like on my side, and what's the motivation that you see driving most mentors to get involved? Yeah. There's well, there's three reasons people mentor with Thinkful. One is they enjoy teaching. They enjoy like the exposition and teaching of it. They, that giving back, uh, they enjoy, they, they learn it better as a result of teaching it themselves. You got, you're on the spot. Like any teacher will tell you that. And then three, there's a, there's compensation, but that's like actually the third on the list for a reason. Um, and that's, that's true across all of our classes. So what we find is that the mentors at Thinkful are really dedicated to helping students get past that, that, either best practice thing that they didn't know and sort of filling in that gap or helping them get unstuck and, and helping them articulate the question either directly or, or, or uh, asynchronously over some like email or something. Um, and so the motivation of the mentor is this, is this complex blended mix. And we actually thought for a while that that was really unique. And then we started talking to the Google help out people when Google just shut down their help outs effort. And it turns out that's like exactly what they found too. They found that the best, people on helpouts were the ones who were charging very little for their services. The the ones who are, who are in it for the money are not the ones who are succeeding, but instead it's the ones that want to learn it themselves. Who want to be, and who want to, who want to be teachers. And that's the same in rails as it is for anything else. As a little social experiment, I am, do you know of a company called code mentor? They're like, kind of like what you guys do for people in a pinch once. Yeah, exactly. Um, so as just an experiment, I decided that I would a handful of times be a mentor through that. And I had zero interest in the money, very much to your point. And how did it go? Um, I found it super. So do you mind if we take a few minutes on this? Because it's like, no, a... no, it's really interesting. And we're, we're developing future. Well, I'll tell you about our future roadmap, but, but where, where was it? What did you find? Okay. So I did it three separate times and. Yep. Three times. And for a decent amount of time on each one. And I've never had done an episode about it. And I actually did it because I wanted to have an episode about it. I found it to be a almost upsetting experience. Oh, well, um, in one way. And I found it very rewarding in another, but, 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 uh, let me tell you why. So 
the panic on the other side of the session was so intense that I just felt for the people so much. So let me describe the situation on each of them. The first one, I'll oh, two of them were the most interesting. So the first one was a guy that was a professional developer. I mean, you know, has been working as a developer for a while, clearly knew what he was doing to some degree. Like I would think that he, his skills would have been probably about equivalent to what someone would be in the three months after they graduated from an offline bootcamp ish. So, I mean, he, he kind of knew what he was doing, but didn't really totally know what he was doing and found himself in a kind of painted into a corner and did not know how to get out of it. Mm. And he, needed help, um, getting himself out, but had reached such a state by the time he, um, submitted the request for some help on code mentor that 80% of the effort was just being his counselor and sort of getting him back to a, a nice, calm, sort of ready to tackle a problem state of mind. Well, um, and I don't think that that was anything unique to him. Well, well I'll tell the second story in a minute, but now that I've read a lot of these requests and uh, done a few of the sessions, I actually think there's something to this experience. Like, I think this is a very common moment that people get themselves into. And, um, it felt very, it felt very uncomfortable to me. I mean, he, I, I told him, listen, I don't even want any money. So you can hit like, you know, you can hit cancel at the end or ask for a refund and I'll give it back. He, he wasn't okay with that. He also was extremely concerned about every single minute that ticked by. Huh. So you could, I mean, he would say things like he, he was looking at 13 minutes, 14 minutes, 16 minutes, 20, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, what he actually needed was so simple. I mean, he, he was, he was using Capybara and didn't understand something about the details and about uh, testing the, uh, the front end and kind of needed to, to drop down into unit tests and controller tests before he got to where he was like, it, it wasn't hard what he needed to do, but the skills needed to be a good mentor were like, I don't know, 20% technical. I mean, I needed to know what I was doing to help figure out the problem quickly, but mostly it was just like being parachuted into someone's crisis. Yeah. And it was like crisis management. And I found it very intense. Uh, and like, I was happy that I got him out of the problem and I received a very nice note from him saying, geez, you know, I, I was in a really, really bad place and I had a deadline and I was in big trouble. Um, and I kind of, that part felt good, but it also felt very exploitive or exploitative from your side. It did. Yeah. But, but I mean, you're providing just to play devil's advocate. You're providing a lifeline for this person. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, I didn't want any money like as the lifeline. I found it to be extremely rewarding. The fact that there was some money mixed in, I absolutely hated. And That's really interesting. I did not want any money. Like it, it, it uh, he, he refused to do that. So I gave the money to, <laughs> to the church actually. But, uh, it was a, it felt very uncomfortable. Like I, I, even though you're right, he, he did need a lifeline and I was able to provide it. And that part's all good. Um, as a business, I didn't like it. I felt like it was preying on people in his position. Um, that's really interesting. And what happened the second time? So the second time was, um, maybe even more intense. So <laughs> it was a, because the first guy knew what he was doing better. Uh, and he, he just, you know, wasn't a great engineer, to be honest. And, uh, his problem solving skills weren't excellent, but he knew enough to get himself far enough along that he would need to be good to get out of it. You know? So yeah, his situation was, was, 
quite different than the, the second one. The second one was a, uh, a woman who was a bit older that I believe was going to school for to program. Now, she wasn't exactly direct about this, but the work that she was working on was clearly like a class assignment. Mm-hmm. And um, she uh, uh, didn't have any formal training around uh, programming, as far as I could tell. Had an intense desire to be good, which was great, um, but uh, really didn't even have the basics. I mean, so so basic understanding of of the kind of programming concepts that you'd figure out right, in right. the first two, one month, three weeks, right. even conditionals or loops or exactly something around control flow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, her, her foundation was so weak and she had, um, kind of cargo culted her way through the class so aggressively so far yep. that it was very easy to get, like to just step on what you'd assume was like a firm piece of ice and fall right through. Mm. And, um, it's very di- intimidating. I mean, that's the kind of situation. It's an extremely difficult for the learner situation. That's oh, like wicked you know, stress levels are just enormous. Still. Well, what she said, I mean, I didn't count it, but I bet. So I probably helped her for 45 minutes. Same deal. I said, listen, I don't want any money. I just know you, you know, you need a hand and I'm, I'm going to help you through this. Um, she, uh, I bet in 45 minutes or an hour or whatever the, cause it was a long session. Uh, I bet she said, no fewer than 30 times some version of, I am so sorry. I really know how to do this, but I'm just having trouble. Like she had this guilt that was so intense and raw and sad to me Mm. that it, 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 it really was torturing her the whole thing. And even though, I mean, I was able to obviously help and get her from where she was to a more structured place to try to figure things out and got through some of the basic kind of, uh, educational building blocks that she didn't know. Um, it was, it was also very intense. It was like being parachuted into someone's midlife crisis. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that strikes me in both those stories is the, is the, the lack of an existing, the lack of a relationship. And so you're in this sort of crash experience of fixing something plus helping them understand plus building a relationship. And you sort of, what we found very closely, very, very consistently is that you can't really do all those things at once. You have to build a relationship of, of trust very early and then leverage that more and more throughout learning. I mean, that, that environment of being, I guess in the first story sort of stuck, um, and, and panicking as well as, uh, and then the second one feeling completely un cargo cult, I guess is the phrase you use, like, and, but not being able to be confident about that as a normal place to be, which it is, it's extremely normal to be in that, to be in over your head. Um, especially in software engineering, the, the, the ability not to be able to express that openly in both situations is really, uh, for me and someone who spent two years watching thousands of students get, get better and get skilled is that's the part that's really scary. Cause I think in practice you need you need to have a relationship with the person that you're learning with so that, so that you can be open with them. I mean, this is true in like my entire life as well as when I learn, if I don't feel comfortable with my peers, then I'm not going to be open to learning. I'm not going to be open to remembering. I'm not going to be open to admitting that I'm, that I don't know what I'm doing. And those things are just enormous blocks for, for actual education. So it's sort of like, I mean, you're, 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 I sus- in those examples, and I don't think I, I'd be surprised if there aren't a lot more successes than um, a lot more clean successes, basically. 
But in those examples, um, it, it illustrates for me the lack of a relationship between the teacher and the student, uh, for the people in those roles. Boy, I don't know. I agree. Really? I, mean, I think it, it sort of illustrates that. So I don't totally disagree, but I, I read, so as part of my little experiment to get in the minds of people that were looking for help like that, I read, oh man, let's say at least a hundred requests for help, probably more. Yeah. And the, you could tell pretty easily after a while what the situation was in back of the question, yeah. you know, cause it would project into the question pretty easily. The, the number so if I was guessing of, of a hundred or, you know, per 100 requests that I saw the number that would have an outcome that I think was successful. And here's how I'll design, define successful where the person was really fundamentally in a better place afterwards. Like in the two that I, that I helped, they were obviously at the end in a much better sort of mental state that I'm positive of that. And the technical solutions in each case were, were very easy, but do, do I think that they actually are like better off really? No, I don't. I think that they'll hit the same place in another hour and not have a way to get out of it. Oh, wait. So which part do you disagree with? Oh, that any, that it was the relationship bit that had anything to do with that. Like, I, I think that it was actually quite easy to, to develop a trusting relationship with people for, for a very particular reason, which was that they had so much guilt associated with where they were. And in all three cases, the third one was similar to the first. So in all three cases, they had such intense guilt about not being able to get out of the situation themselves that talking to a stranger, I think was probably just as good as talking to a person they knew. Interesting. I mean, I wish, I guess listening to the story, I wish they were getting help before that moment. Um, so it wasn't quite so stressful. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that this is it's okay. So I totally agree, but uh, a product like code mentor. So of the hundred that I read, the number that would have been people asking in a panic for help that should have asked before. Mm. Um, but at this point, all it's going to do is sort of get them off the ledge and back to a place where they still needed help before was like 98 out of a hundred. Wow. It was every one of them. Wow. That's really something. I mean, what we see in our community are, are people asking questions kind of a lot and a lot more often. And so I hope that what we're doing, I mean, I'm sure there's stressful times, right? But I'm hoping that what we're doing is encouraging people to kind of like, ask along the way instead of waiting until it's so dire Boy, the direness of that situation is really, um, not something I'd want to be in myself. Well, I think I it's the incentives. I mean, if you just look at the financial model of <clears throat> code right, mentor, exactly. right. So it's not a surprise that that's how it ends up. I mean, or it's, it's like, it's sort of, it's again, one of those things where once you see it, you go, Oh, that sort of makes sense. That's, that's cause you, you have to, you have to really want it at that moment. You really need it. But I think in our, in our environment, we're, we're, we're always trying to facilitate more open discussion and like more watching, watching others learn and community involvement. So it, it keeps you, you know, you're in our community and then you, um, and then, so you don't feel, you don't, you don't have that lead up to stress. You have, you, you sort of do it along the way every time and it, it de-stresses from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So much better than like if, if code mentors business model was more like help insurance than like an on-call doctor, it would work way better. Like, that's interesting. Yeah. Because that's what they need. You know, people need sort of, uh, to pay in, uh, an amount or have their employer or whatever, pay in an amount so that, yeah, if they do get hit by a uh, hit by a bus sort of, you know, figuratively speaking in, in their programming that they can go to the ER, but that most of the work is preventative is to try to keep them from, from, you know, contracting the disease or whatever it is. Yeah. That's a nice way to put it actually. Um, I mean, disease and maybe not the word I would use, but <laughs> yeah, whatever, right? Like whatever malady they, they can avoid through some sort of proactive yeah. care. Um, 
Yeah. Cause once it gets, I mean, I think the ER example is pretty apt. Once the patient gets to the ER programming wise, it's a bad spot to be in. Right. Um, really, really bad. So tell me, tell me about what you guys are thinking about in that area. Well, so what we think more about, um, is how often that situation instead of leading to the, to the ER, in fact, just leads to demotivation. Uh, and demotivation is, 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 I mean, at least in the ER, you can resurrect, so to speak. Like you can, you can jump in and really get the help from, from someone who knows and, and de-stress it. But, but a lot of the times what we see is if it's just, if it's, if it's difficult, that's really good. But if it's too much, then the person, the student disengages and then they, they sort of lose interest. Um, and that's especially easy when you have a full-time job or when you have a, a kid or, or whatever your other life obligations might be. And the, and the, the, so the balance for us is to be there all the time with your mentor with whom you've developed a relationship over weeks and weeks and weeks or with our, with someone, with the rest of our community. Um, and so the, and the balance is finding out is, is pushing you to, to be challenged so that you go faster, but also, being there when you're when you're stuck after let's say an hour of struggle on a topic instead of six hours, because it turns out after you know five hours you're, is when you're going to give up, and so so we think much more about we don't, we I don't think we end up in the ER situation very I don't think our students end up in the ER very often thankfully, um, but we do try to push them and we do try to keep them but we also try to keep them uh, engaged and motivated, and that's 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 the that's the interesting like that's the sort of lifelong balance for for our products. Yeah, having an ER is I think an interesting outlet in that one it it helps people in emergencies, but I think it also tells you where things are falling down. Yeah, and you see that with consistent questions, and so we we pro like we know that um, we know that Git and installing Git and just um, if you've never used source control, that using Git is like very very difficult to comprehend, and it, the mental model around it is. is around source control is really complex. And then especially if you're new to terminal and especially if you're new to, um, the editors and, and file changes and remote code and all these things. So those, those model, those mental models are very tricky. And so what we find very quickly works is helping student uh, understanding where you are in that understanding, either completely new or have used it a few times, but don't understand something like branches or you know, whatever it is. Um, and then the, the, the mentor can jump in and help you there. Uh, and so what, what we find is a lot of students get stuck in that particular area. And so our curriculum is really, really versed and really, really uh, gone through a lot of revision in that particular spot because we see consistent, um, uh, because we see students falling off there. And then we also do, we, we, we work with the mentors to make sure that they know what to expect and to what kind of questions they should ask up front and kind of calibrate, really customize the learning to wherever that student is at that moment. Uh, and so it's less about, again, like a, the ER analogy might be a good one. I'm going to, I'm going to start bringing that up internally and see what happens, but it, it's less about measuring when you're in the ER and more for us about measuring when, when fall off has happened over the, again, cause we've just had thousands and thousands of students go through. Um, we can see where the common problems are. We can see where the common questions are and then we can either build curriculum for that or leverage or like expect, uh, sort of the, the mentor can jump in with their expertise, uh, and tailor whatever they're learning to, uh, whatever the student needs to, um, what that, what that topic demands or what their gaps are in particular. So in addition to the, call it the, you know, set up the machine, get the basics of how to interact with code on your machine and remotely and have your server boot, et cetera, yep. you know, which I definitely have seen the same thing you said. I can, I can imagine how common that is. The second thing that I see frequently that really is very difficult to people that are are either new to programming or frankly not new to programming, but new to open source 
is asynchronous communication is unbelievably hard for people. Um, and so critical, I think, if you're going to program successfully by yourself, you know, do you like, mean like, do you mean like issues or, or, or pull requests or it, do you mean- issues, email stack overflow, you yeah. know, actually submitting questions. Um, anything that require, as soon as you, it requires you to sort of formulate your question or thoughts, yeah. articulate them without the opportunity to go back and forth live and then wait for someone to respond or, or in the reverse, be the person responding in the case that you're you know, on the receiving end of that. Um, that seems like a hell of a hurdle for people to get over. Do, I mean, to me, at least, do you see that? And if so, tell me more about what you found about how to get better at it. Yeah, well, I see that. I've seen that in my own career and that influences how we've, we are working with folks on our HQ team. Um, and then a lot of the times what I recommend to other people. So what I found uh, is actually, this is one of the spots where QA and being really good at QA and the related things you have to be good at actually makes a huge impact. Uh, and so basically in QA, you're waiting to, you're waiting, you're working on a system that's like in some staging environment and you have to come out with a list of questions or bugs or oddities or for things to further investigate. And the most efficient way to do that is to do it as in an asynchronous way. It's, it's, you don't want to sit there with the engineer uh, on their computer, you want to sit there with, on your computer, working through all the workflows or understanding how the product works and then coming up with a list and then submitting that list either directly or through a, through a system uh, of all the things you found. And so describing a, basically in, in quality assurance, in, in describing a bug, it's, a, it's at core the same thing as asking a question. You're, you're saying, I did this thing, I expected X, but I got Y, or should I have gotten Y instead it gave me an error? And you have to actually detail out all the critical things that lets the engineer or whoever replicate what you're doing. And you have to communicate that in writing because it's, it, it, I mean, if you're, if you're doing QA efficiently, there's probably like several of those and not just one at a time. <laughs> right. um, and the, so the company's so, bug, we found a bug. Right. Exactly. So like, you, the, so, so I found actually, interestingly enough, um, that, that process is extremely good at training, uh, on how to do that kind of asynchronous communication. And I found that it's in my career and where I started. I didn't, uh, in my, in the first, in my first professional engineering job, um, it was, it was very trial by fire and it was usually our own code that would break, but you had to get to be very good at fixing it on the fly. Um, and we didn't have a lot of good infrastructure for, for testing. We just, we, we kind of had to roll stuff out quickly. Uh, and that made me very good at QA. And now I see a lot of, a lot of people that want to go into engineering. Um, you want them in a QA role for, for a bunch of months because it really does help you get a fluency in communication around the things that are happening in the code. It helps you think like a machine write in a way that's codified, ask questions in a, in an efficient way. And then you naturally doing it all asynchronously. I think there are a couple of things that are interesting there. So one, you know, given this is the Ruby on rails podcast, we usually talk about Ruby. Um, the, the testing culture in Ruby is so strong that the number of times that I've ever on this podcast talked to someone about a QA role specifically is like one you know, <laughs> because like that, that, that idea is just super foreign in the Ruby culture where, you know, everyone is testing their code and yes, of course QA exists, but it's at a way higher level than, um, well, I, I mean, I, I don't know where, where maybe there's disagreement about where QA sits, but basically, uh, I've tried for years without QA and then as soon as you have a good QA person or as soon as you have a good QA stage in your development process, productivity or, or quality of version one 
uh, goes up. Oh yeah, yeah. It, no, it does and, not and, change. Like testing, you can't you can't substitute like QA for testing or testing for QA. You can't you can't actually use it as a as a stopgap for 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 testing because that's just a rote that makes it into a rote skill and inevitably will fail. Oh yeah, but, no, and I agree. I'm not saying that like in the Ruby and Rails development world that like QA is not a thing. Of course, it's a thing. It's just that it's it's not a phrase that's often mentioned by Ruby programmers. Um, <laughs> Which, uh, which is a, a, an aside, really. But uh, on the the point of, um, of sort of learning to get good at async, I think QA is a great uh, avenue. I think that there's an irony about async, which is that people's initial... And I also see the, the, the irony of talking about the value of async and Ruby in the same sentence, but okay, here we go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that um, people's initial impression about asynchronous communication is that it's like less human, that like it's less people centric that the people centric way to do things is for you and I to have a conversation, you know, either in person or in Skype or whatever it is. And then, you know, have a dialogue back and forth and give and take about our ideas and come to some sort of joint conclusion. And that's true, I guess. But, uh, I think that the async to get good at it, you actually have to see it as more human in that it's like so disrespectful to force synchronous communication on people. Right. Because like it's saying you have to come at my place and my time to talk about my issue instead of I need help and I'm going to bring the topic to your place in your time so that you can respond whenever it makes sense for you. That's like a much more human way to do it than like be all demanding about when and when and where and how one's going to talk about one's issue. And at least for me, I've had a lot of success in pitching to people just, and maybe QA is exactly why, but maybe your example is dead on this point that, you know, once they see sort of how much the burden skyrockets, when you force someone to communicate, communicate synchronously, they become much more respectful and, and see the value of synchronous communication and how it, 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 it actually respects the other people as sort of people with their own agendas and own to-do lists and own lives much more. And that to get back that kind of consideration is what one wants. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, and it, it takes a lot of effort to write out a description that a person can read and understand in one shot, as opposed to having to ask clarifying questions. And you actually see this a lot with um, really good uh, support, like really good company support. And I don't necessarily, I don't mean just like software, but, but you see it all the time when in, in good co company support, when the support person on the other end, like when you email, you know, support at thinkful.com with a question, when we respond back with, here's an answer and you can do what you needed to do with that answer without having to come go back and forth with us. That's a much, that indicates a much healthier style of communication and infrastructure and product maturity and, um, just, just like uh, overall, overall ability of our people to communicate. Um, then, what happens when you have to ask clarifying questions, or when the person gives you a half answer? And so, you, you tend to see very good companies with support that responds back with one email because they don't they they can give you a full answer really quickly. Uh, and then you see companies that have like shaky systems and shaky support procedures having to go back and forth with you many times. Uh, it's an interesting KPI, but it's exactly what you're saying. It's it's the ability to articulate. It's that it's that very human thing. It's the ability to articulate in one shot, kind of what's going on, 
uh, as opposed to have to um, sort of set up a, basically set up a meeting or have six or seven emails back and forth. I mean, it's interesting to think about here. So all these big challenges about learning to be a professional programmer, you know, think about what we talked about. We talked about, um, you know, using Git and dealing with the terminal and remote systems talked about sort of dealing with the crises and talking yourself down from panic moments. We talked about, you know, learning how to communicate effectively with people that aren't in the same place and time as you. Um, and none of these things are programming topics, which is no big surprise for anyone that's programmed. But, you know, the key to being even a intermediate programmer is mostly about, a, it's mostly about communication and sort of fundamentals that are below the programming level and ha- has very little to do with, you know, how you, you know, ha- how well, you know, the, the API or DSL for the framework you're using or, or whatever. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And we find, um, we find very clearly that you need to be in the mindset of, uh, creating a system rather than creating a, creating, um, uh, creating less of a mess. So, so actually the, the analogy I use internally a lot. And this, this is, I mean, again, it's like me as a software engineer for 15 years and I'm still learning an enormous amount. Um, but basically when you're, when you're, when you, when you have an a, employees, a company tend to like take in a mess and they produce one of two things. If they're good, they produce less of a mess, meaning like the problem is solved or they produce a process that makes the mess up front easy, like just easier to handle next time. Uh, and a programmer, a, a relationship-based person, a person who's not an engineer at all, who just does not have the mindset or the training, will will tend to be in the first group. They'll tend to take in a mess, and as output of their work, they'll 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 be less of a mess. A, an angry customer comes in, uh, a happy customer comes out. A a database problem comes in, and and a, and like clean data comes out. Um, stuff like that. Whereas a software engineer or someone in the mindset of a software engineer will see a mess, they'll maybe fix the problem in the immediate, and that's like actually secondary, but primarily what they're doing is they're producing, they're asking the question, well, why did this happen? How did we end up here? How did, let me, what do I do next time that makes this not happen in the first place? Uh, what do I do to create a process that means that less, there'll be less mess overall next time? And in the long term, and this is true of all software engineering, in the long term, you just end up with more systems, more process, more, more automation. Uh, and at core, that is what software engineering does. It, it treats things as something that is a repeatable item that you can then go back to and do faster the second time and even faster the third time. And so what I find is that regardless of where you are in your organization, if you if you have that mindset, you can become a software engineer very, very quickly because syntax is easy to learn. And if you have the mindset of one-off problems and everything's different, then it becomes it's extremely difficult to learn kind of anything in software engineering. I think that that anecdote kind of is another... Um example of why asynchronicity is exactly. is so important because like if you could think about like uh, the engineer or, or you know employee in your example as the server and if things are synchronous then there's a huge priority in like completing the work of the request and returning the result to the the requesting party um, right yep. because you're holding exactly. up, you're holding up the request whereas if it's asynchronous you can like spawn a bunch of jobs like consider if this has happened before put in place measurement system to track how many times it happens in the future you know conduct research on alternatives you know like all these things and even if they take some time no sweat because you're not in the request loop anymore exactly Um, exactly and so we put time into that with our team and people that you know unsurprisingly we hire 
a lot of our students and as, as members of Thinkful. And as unsurprisingly, we put a lot of effort into, it should be unsurprising, we put a lot of effort into uh, helping our junior folks or people that are junior in their role grow into their next role, and often that's engineering. And this is like this is the common lesson: is that you see the engineering principles um, in every part of the organization, and it's about using it. And then the coding layer is like some, a layer on top. And right. for the first few years of being an engineer, that's really the most important thing. It's really not um, whether you know where the parentheses and the colons go. Right. All right. Well, I should take a quick break here and uh, record the uh, or read rather the uh, the sponsor pitch from CodeShip. Okay. Yeah, we talked about them a bit before, but as uh, is frequently the case, uh, CodeShip is sponsoring episode number 186 also. So CodeShip is continuous delivery made simple. It's based on usability, so everything is designed to be as easy to use as possible. In fact, CodeShip listened to all the feedback that their users gave, and they recently... Uh, redesign their entire application it came out in waves so it wasn't really a big bang wasn't disruptive at all but has resulted in the whole app feeling uh, quite a bit fresher uh, not only does the new design look better but it also has a lot of new usability improvements to make things uh, easier and quicker than before you can set up continuous integration in a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed They've got great support for lots of languages and test frameworks. They can integrate with GitHub or Bitbucket and then deploy to wherever your servers are, like Heroku, AWS, your own uh, setup, Nojitsu, whatnot. Uh, to make things even better, they recently announced a, a brand new feature called Parallel CI. It allows for faster testing than before. You set up test pipelines and then split your test commands across those pipelines so that your test suite runs in parallel. It's a great feature. I've used it. It works just as advertised. Uh, early access customers were able to improve their development speed tremendously. Uh, CodeShip offers the best service and value for parallel testing. They have a free plan, so you can try it out uh, very easily. Uh, it includes 100 builds per month and five private projects. You can learn more about them at CodeShip.com and check out their blog at blog.codeship.com to get updates. If you use the offer code 5x5Ruby, you get 20% off any plan for three months. Thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring. All right. Cool. All right. So what's next for Thinkful? Um well, so that's a, that's a great question. I mean, what we're finding, I, I mentioned it right up top, but what we're finding is more and more experienced engineers are coming to us asking for, um, well, asking to, asking to not be isolated when they learn. And it turns out that means a very different thing in terms of the course, but, at, but it means a very, very exact same thing of what we've been doing since we started, which is uh, mentors that help you go faster, an expert in a topic that helps you go faster. I mean, like really all that happens in adult education can be done. If you wanted to, you could do it all on your own. You could sit in isolation and learn this stuff without any, uh, without any help. But, in, but if you want to go faster, you want expert help. You want someone who knows who's been there before, who can help you get through it. Um, and so it's really just a speed. It's just an efficiency, but a massive one. And so what we're finding is we, our topics are um, beginner friendly, but our mentor network has this unbelievable, amount of expertise and, and you know you have contributors to major projects you have creators of major open source projects you have people that have been working in you know early employees of apple and adobe and, and people that are just amazing throughout the network uh and there's now 300 of them we have the largest network of that of that of this expertise kind of anywhere 
And so as more software engineers or people that are um, further along in their development path or even graduates of our classes are coming to us, we're finding new ways to basically deliver uh, a much faster version of, of, a, of a piece of training because they don't need the same things that a beginner needs. You need uh, a much more customized curriculum to match exactly where you are. You need to get up to speed on um, React because that's what your engineering team is trying to use, but you don't want to spend three months doing that. You want to spend like a day. Uh, and so we're doing a lot of things to, to tailor to this inbound interest. Um, and it's working really well through this interesting area for us. Now, are the the topic areas sort of like ad hoc pulled from the needs of the professional developers that want a little bit more? So let me give an example. Is it like something like someone said posts, hey, I... Uh, know that JSON API is hitting 1.0 and I need a crash course in how to use it effectively on the server side, on a Rails app side. Yeah. Or, or is it more like, you know, you know, advanced routing 303? Well, it's, um, it, it can be either, but actually the scenario that I, that, that, that makes the most sense is something that happened to us. Um, or it's happening to us now, basically, is that we, we're, we're an Angular shop if you use a lot of our apps uh, on the front end. They're all Angular. And then our engineering team didn't like where Google was headed with Angular, which is a whole other podcast but is you know interesting. Uh, and so we started experimenting with others, and we really liked where React was going. So in practice, what does that mean? It means that one person on the team had done a React project, had been you know weeks ahead on, on learning this stuff, had forged away, had built a couple tools. And then we wanted to start building more React. And so we were faced with this one. Oh, well, should we turn this one engineer, should this one engineer that's just a little bit ahead um, spend all their time teaching everyone else on the team how to use React and answering questions all day for like weeks and weeks? Is that going to be efficient for the learners? Is that going to be efficient for the engineer? And the answer, of course, is no. But what we did need was a way to, to have everyone on the team get up to speed or at least experiment and not go on to horrible practices with React. Like the last thing you want and this is like, I mean, any engineer will tell you this. The last thing you want is having the, let's say, Angular best practice or Python best practice or Rails best practice applied to React because the paradigm right. is just going to be very different. Like that you'll, you'll certainly get the job done, but the next engineer that wants to iterate on that code will find, I mean, we'll, we'll discover debt because that's what you've created. So the trick for us, and this is exactly what we've been productizing, is to create a way for an engineer, this is somebody who, who knows a Python or a Rails or whatever it might be, or knows SQL or doesn't know SQL or has only used the ORM or isn't familiar with Node or isn't familiar with server-side rendering for you know, all these things, whatever the, whatever the constellation of skills they have already. But they certainly know what they're doing um, and have them come up to speed on this new tool set like React. And so that can be, to answer your question, that can be a thing is hitting 1.0, like a and I need to get I need to understand the differences really quickly. Or it can be, gee, it turns out like uh, uh, security is really important and penetration testing is really important, and we just had a big change in strategy and it's driving a ton of traffic now, and we need to have we need to have load balancing and nobody knows that on the team. And it's it's being able to, to pull on that help uh, really quickly when you need it and get really good guidance. Which, if you think about it, is exactly what would happen if you had all the engineering resources and all the expertise at your fingertips, which is kind of what we're trying to provide. And it turns out with this 300-person uh, expert network of, of software engineers, we can, we can actually get there. So it's sort of, from our perspective, it's pretty exciting. And as customers of this product ourselves here at Thankful, that's, we're, we definitely like it when that happens. And I can relate to all that. You know, I, I mainly work by myself, not entirely, but, but more than any other 
uh, you know, more than any other operations mode. And I've, you know, I, I when Ember kind of same story as you, but Ember instead of React. And yeah, it's a even even knowing what I am doing generally speaking, man, it's a steep curve at first. And right, uh, like you said, I, I think the Rails to Ember sort of transition is the the the, the two frameworks share a lot in common in terms of their convention over configuration sort of ethos, but very little in common in terms of nomenclature and structure. And, yeah. uh, and yeah. wouldn't you like to have had, like, like the model has always been tap someone on the shoulder to get help like you would at your office. I mean, it's a natural, it's, it's the best way to, for, for someone in this profession and in technical expertise to learn. And so it's, it's like this very obvious thing that nobody's, that nobody's been doing. Yeah. I mean, my solution was well, aside from like reading the book, which is, is uh, to some degree, my approach to things. I just said on Twitter, cause I know enough people on Twitter, Hey, I could use a little bit of a walkthrough on a few topics, but you know, I, I, I guess knew enough people that I, you know, was, was able to get a couple people willing to spend a few hours with me over the course of a couple weeks on a couple topics that seemed to not be covered well in the, the books right. and documentation. But in general, that's not, you know, you're not going to be so lucky. Right, but that's exactly the same thing that we're doing. So we're 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 great. productizing that. I guess is how to is how to position. It. I think that sounds awesome. Cool. Well, that's where we're going now. I mean, we're also doing a lot of these beginner things. We're doing new beginner classes, and we're, we 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 there's a few other things in the works. But like this one, this is the one that's um, more on my plate than than the others. And so that's that's where I'm coming from. Is the is the the pricing model more of the help insurance model, or is it more a la carte kind of a visit to the doctor? Uh, it depends. That's a good question. So if you're an individual, um, we think you should just be able to do this to do this thing a la carte. Like you, you know, you know. And this brings us back to our earlier conversation. But you're certainly um, you, you have a skill to learn, and you should be able to learn it. And you should just be fast about being able to get that. So you, maybe you schedule it for two weeks later, but you just buy once. We, what we're finding is that companies uh, that are companies that are um, that think about how to how the long term investment of their code base and therefore of their engineers, they want this as a resource. So they're finding they want to do they want it to be available to their people. So like let's say right now you're buying like a Linda or a Pluralsight subscription. In practice, what happens is maybe ten percent of the over a course of a year, like ten percent of people will use that subscription, uh, and so ninety percent don't use it. But you're still paying for everybody. The problem is you don't know which ten percent are going to use it, so you have to buy for everybody. Now, in our model, what we think is really interesting is you can do the same, you can spend the same amount of money as you would on like a really large Linda subscription, but you only, but you, you like focus the education on the people that are on that 10% that are going to use it. And therefore those 10% get a really vastly better experience. Um, and that's really interesting. So you can, so you can like dramatically improve the, the experience of everybody that uses it and the people that don't use it have it as an option for the, for the following year. Yeah, that's just, uh, that's well said and smart. You know, the idea that, you know, people are buying the option value of being able to, to, to get the help, but why invest into the part of the curve that's never going to actually take advantage of it? Yeah, and the option value as a company makes a lot of sense because you want, I mean, good companies want their employees to have growth opportunities. They want those doors to be open, and then they expect good people to walk through them. By walking through them, it make, makes you good. So yeah, both sides have to play their part. So the option value is valuable to a company, um, and then the actual value provided by the service is is where we, we think we're doing something really special. Yeah. 
Well, and I mean that having a big network is a lot of it because trying to pull that off without a large network of of experts or or at least experts in a given cat, uh, topic is would would not go that well. Yeah, that's it. That's that's what we're finding really special. These these there's people that really enjoy um, working with us, and we love working with them. And, and this is. You know, it feels a little bit like, uh, I mean, 300, I, I sort of look forward to listening to this podcast in a bunch of years and saying, gee, I remember 300 sounded like this big number, but it's so small. Because um, there's, you know, there's millions and millions of people out there who are writing code for a living. Uh, and they're, they're what, what is the number? Do you have a guess? Well, it's a really, that's a, it's a neat question. You just raised money, right? This had to be in your, your sales pitch. Yeah, I mean, nobody doubts the size of the market for, for technical training software. Software is eating the world is the common, mm-hmm. is the common VC quote. Um, but yeah, the, the, the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics will say there's like 1.6 or sort of one and a half million, some number in that range, uh, software engineers in the U S. Uh, but it turns out like if you look at where, uh, the number of people writing code is, you know, five or seven or 10 times that, uh, every month. And, and that what it means is that the definition of software engineer, like a person who has that title, only represents a small minority of the people that are writing code for a living. And that's because software is needing in the world. Because there's people, um, like even in my first career, I was in finance and, and I would write code all day, but I definitely didn't have, have software engineer as a, as a title. And we've hired lots of people who were in social media um, analysis companies and they definitely didn't have software engineering titles, but they found, like, every, like the whole economy is finding, that you can make things a lot more efficient and faster if you're writing a little bit of Python or code or Rails around it. Um, and so, the, so the, the, there's, there's many times more people than the official statistics, and that's reflected in um, how, how big Stack Overflow is versus, versus, any other, versus any other place and the number of people that visit Stack Overflow versus the number of official engineers there are in the, in the BLS reports, that kind of thing. So I just checked the course list and found it... I don't think this is surprising, I suppose, but it's interesting given what you just said, that Excel is not on the list, or call it spreadsheets, you know, whether it's Excel or, or you know, Google Apps or whatever, even though that's absolutely the most, you know, the most used programming language that exists um, and is massively important to every business, and every business would be way better if their people were better at Excel. Um, is that, well, one, I guess, do you agree with that? And two... Uh, would it be weird if you had an Excel sort of path? Um, no, so I do. I definitely agree, and this is actually one of those things where you sometimes end up in arguments. But we're on the same side. I, I absolutely agree uh, that that Excel is a, is a, or Google Spreadsheets is a programming language. Like it's exactly goes to my thing of the thing I said earlier, which is uh, you take in a mess and you produce a system, and that like, a spreadsheet app is definitely. We do. Do people disagree with that? Yeah, there's people who don't see it that way. They think of it as a they think of it as a GUI. They think of it as the the code is so optional. They think of arithmetic, not whatever. There's there's different arguments. Um, ah, they've never written a good model. Then. <laughs> they, they haven't they haven't seen my spreadsheets. <laughs> exactly. Come on. Um, I mean, it's like functional programming. I think quite literally like functional basic in there. And stuff. Um, but yeah, no. So we don't we at the moment don't offer an Excel class. That's a good point. I think the. Um, a lot of like, uh, why is that exactly? It's sort of path dependent. I don't think there's any, there's no strategic reason why we're not offering Excel, uh, except that a lot of our students are, and our mentors are software engineers, um, and so they, they're, it's just not coming up as much. But I think, um, and when you look at like, when you look at the companies that are buying Thinkful courses, they're really like big, 
they're like they're like kind of they're, they're really cool. I wish I could name a bunch of them, but they're like a really a lot of the really really great startups around. Exposed brick. And, uh, exposed brick, exposed brick, and lots of VC money, like <laughs> and, and the ones you'd heard of, and, they, and they're not ha- those. The, that audience does not need spreadsheet training. What they need is SQL training, um, which are and again, this is another one of those points of contention. Six, uh, Excel or, or Google Google spreadsheet is much closer to SQL than when you get into the programming side of it. So we're getting asked a lot more for SQL, uh, like like. Uh, like for a marketing team or for a data visualization team or for an analytics team, uh, we're getting much more requ- many more requests for SQL than we are for, um, uh, especially from, from sort of like leading edge uh, companies that are doing a lot of big data or, or medium-sized data than we are for spreadsheets. But that's just the way it is right now, and who knows what the future has. Yeah, well, I mean, it's probably somewhat self-selecting in that, uh, right. the, you know, obviously the people that are buying your current courses are the people on the, the sort of full-stack programming track. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I've kept you a long time, and uh, I enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. I hope you did too. I did. It was a lot. Of, it's a lot of fun, uh, and I look forward to listening to it ten years from now when 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 it all seems so when it all seems so quaint and we're all so much more so much bigger. That's the hope, right? Or it'll, it'll, you'll look back and go, "Oh man, I was starry eyed." <laughs> no, I read. I read. Uh, I just listened to. Um, you plugged one of my competitors. I can plug one of yours. The uh, I listened to a good friend of mine, Greg Gallant, used to run a podcast called Venture Voice, and I just stumbled across it. and I and I was listening to him interview Reed Hoffman from 2007. And to listen to Reed Hoffman talk about LinkedIn in 2007 is a, is an eye opening experience. LinkedIn hmm. is this phenomenon that oh yeah uh, is so baked into our understanding of professional life, but. In 2007, he's on the podcast saying, "Okay, well, it's this professional network, and you should fill out your profile, and you should, you should connect with people, and we're discovering X, Y, Z little thing." And it sounds so uh, ephemeral at that moment, and so you realize how far they've come in just a small number of years. I highly recommend uh, looking up Venture Voice and poking around. There's also interviews with Dick Costolo and uh, you know all the guys from Twitter and all these things. So yeah, great, I will, I will do that. Sources. Well, this isn't a profession for me, so you can plug any podcast you like. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> well, then in that case, Code Newbie is also doing a series of very good podcasts. Yeah, I, I hear about that from a friend of mine that uh, yeah, uh, quite There's a bit. One on with Zed Shaw, where he he's he's the one working on that report I mentioned at the beginning uh, about the state of boot camps and and the promises made. Um, so that there's there's a really good uh, a, a bunch of those are very very good. All right. Well, I, I suppose we've plugged Thinkful quite a bit, but what the hell? Why don't you give one last one? If someone wants to learn more, what, what should they do? Yeah, absolutely. They should go to thinkful.com, T-H-I-N-K-F-U-L.com. Uh, and if they're if they're enjoying watching a video all alone in a dark room and, and, and they enjoy learning alone, then we're not for them. But if they want actual expert to understand where they're coming from and understand where they want to go and to help them get there faster, then they should check out what we're up to uh, across any number of engineering topics. Awesome. Uh, if someone wants to connect with you personally, uh, Daryl Silver on Twitter, D A R R E L L S A L V E R, or just Daryl at thinkful.com. All right, cool. Well, for those that want to connect with me on Twitter, I am barely known.